Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. We are doing a two-week series, last week and this week, looking at the Old Testament for some kind of help in this process of here and now. But before we begin, I want to just tell you a personal story. Uh, it's been a great spring break for our family. Uh, several of our families are still on spring break. Uh, they're ending their travels today and some of them are listening on the road to us even now. And so we'll be excited to, I don't know, the kids will be excited to be back in school. It'd be nice to have everybody kind of back in pocket and moving in that direction. And I got to spend part of my spring break. Um, my girls uh, got to spend several days with grandparents. I got to spend a couple of days with my parents for the first time, really, because of the vaccines and all of that uh, in a year. I've uh, been able to go to their house and spend some time with them and go out to eat with them. And it was just a really cool, cool time. And so we uh, we had a great week. And at the end of the week, um, on Friday, I received my second vaccine dose. And so my arm is, um, it's I may raise this arm a lot today and this one may go here. And that's as high as it'll go. Uh, but I'm excited about that, excited about the world kind of opening back up. And it's been It's been a fascinating thing to watch as this vaccine's been developed and put into the world and, uh, you know, history of vaccines and all of that, human ingenuity in that with God's guiding, I believe, helping us to figure all that out and giving you in this one particular, the one that I got was the two shot variety, you know, that they don't do give you the disease or the dead disease or the weakened disease. They give you just a small part of the RNA of the of the spike protein. I don't have a clue what any of that means, but that's what they gave me, all right? And you figure that out. It's just kind of cool, right? Now, it's also, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, it's also um, one of the greatest times of year in Middle Tennessee. We call it allergy season. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? Some people love spring. Spring has sprung, and spring has sprung means noses are flowing, is what that means, all right? And I have... Grown up in my life as an, I don't know that you can live in Tennessee without having allergies, but I have really had allergies throughout my life. And so it's interesting to me to think about the difference between the way they treat this disease with a vaccine and the way they treat allergy sufferers with what they call allergy shots. Anybody here ever had allergy shots? Yeah, me too. All right. And so. What they do with the vaccine is there's something bad. Your body needs to know how to fight. And so they give you a little bit of it so that your body next time will fight it off more effectively. That is the layman's uninformed version of vaccines, right? Allergy shots are different. They figure out what you're allergic to and at small doses, increasing ever so often, they give you that in a shot. So that your body eventually says, oh, this isn't so bad. And you become used to it. Over time, you just develop this thing where your body goes, oh, that's all right. There's no big deal. Your resistance weakens. Your body is like, I no longer feel that that is a threat to our health. And so we're just going to not do anything about it. That's going to have a point for the sermon in just a moment. All right. As we look at the book of Joel in just a moment. We need to be aware that there are times in the history of God's people when they had an acute, keen, humble, even emotional sensitivity to sin. In the book of Ezra, for instance, 
He, reading the law and realizing his own sin, is overwhelmed to the point that he falls on his face and it says that he is completely on the ground, face down, and he cannot lift his head because of the weight of the sin that is upon him. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah just simply, there is a point in that book when they read the word of God to the people and the people begin to weep and to mourn because they realize the sin in their lives. And throughout history, there have been times when the word of God just goes out. And as it goes out, people become keenly aware of their own failings and they weep over their sin. But there have also been times in the history of God's people when they are desensitized to sin. When they're participating in religious activity, but never stopping or pausing to grasp the depth of our sin and to mourn over it. And the most common way that happens is that we give in to a little bit of sin at a time until we just think that what we're doing is not something bad at all and we no longer have the reaction that we ought to have to the sin that's in our lives. It's almost like the allergy shots that I take. And we build up a resistance over time to the effects and the severity of the sin that we have. We become more used to it. It no longer appalls us. It no longer knocks us to our ground, to the ground on our face. Instead, we begin to accept it or to explain it or to rationalize it or compare it to somebody else's. And before long, gossip is just a normal part of church life. Complaint lives on the tongues of God's people. Lust and impurity is just a part of who we are. That's how we're made. And greed and status and success are the things that drive us in life to accomplish what we think is what will bring us fulfillment. And we're no longer sensitive to the reality of sin. There's a writer several years ago, Cornelius Plantinga, who said, The awareness of sin, a deep awareness of disobedience and painful confession of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. God's people agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still participate in the Lord's Supper. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. That shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, we sometimes say, well, you sinned, and it's often said with a grin, Or with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation had the power to jolt people. We're in this time frame. The 40 days leading to Easter. 14 days left until Easter is here. In the midst of that, there is going to be celebration. We absolutely celebrate because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ who rose again from the grave. Because we celebrate amazing grace that God gives us for the mercy that he bestowed upon us. But there has to come a point before God will move in and through our lives. Before he will move here and now. When we must face the reality of our own sin and be jolted by it. Be appalled by it. 
And it does feel to me that we live in a Christian culture, especially in an American Christian culture, that more and more wants us to make us feel okay. I love modern worship music. I love new songs. I believe that it's scriptural. It tells us in scripture to sing new songs to the Lord. One of the things I was thinking about this week when I was thinking about this particular passage, I was thinking, what new songs would we sing about confession and the need to really pour out who we are before the Lord and to cry over it and to weep over it? And we just don't write songs like that much anymore. Fewer and fewer sermons about that. Instead, we talk about um, we talk about feeling better about ourselves and four steps to accomplishing this in our lives. And listen, I've preached many sermons that are about helpful things in our lives and about how God loves us. And all of those are vitally true. And we're going to talk about that in the midst of the sermon. But I'm afraid many times we are no longer jolted or appalled by our sin. And if God is going to move as we're asking him to, Here and now, we must be jolted by our sin. We must be appalled by it. Martin Lord Jones said this, Go and read the history of revivals. Watch the individuals at the beginning. Invariably, the first thing that happens to them is a recognition of their sin. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God, how terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of their sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Joel chapter 2. A little background on Joel before we dive into this passage. He is one of the earliest prophets that we have. He is after King Solomon, you know, the history of Israel, David and Solomon. After Solomon, it split. But before the exile, before anything happened, probably a student of Elisha, somebody that had worked with him and seen him. And when he's writing this book of Joel, there is lots going wrong. Their nation is filled with bad leadership and civil unrest among the people. Economic problems. National confidence is waiting. Sound familiar? They're in the midst of a national plague. Now, it's not a plague that you or I have ever experienced. It's a plague of locusts. But for them, it was just as terrible as what we experience. Maybe you've seen locusts three inches long Heavily armored grasshoppers. They're not quite that bad when you see them by themselves. When you see them swarming in the millions, however, they are frightening. Anybody here uh, remember the cicadas when they come out? I don't know what year they're coming again. Right? Is it this year? Awesome. Right? We love the cicadas. Every... Some, like, I felt like for several years, I managed to take a vacation or a trip to everywhere. Like, I hit them, if they're 14 years in St. Louis, I hit that one, and then I hit Nashville's, then I hit whatever I was. I was hitting the cicadas. Well, the cicada infestation they happens, they estimate, compared to the locust infestation that was happening in a place like Israel in the day of Joel, would have been about, like the volume level, there's more to it than that, but the volume level would have been about a fourth 
what we hear of what they would have heard. Now also imagine that without any of the modern sounds that we hear anyways. There has been locust plagues in the world in the last 100, 200 years. There was one in 1915. They said that swarms of locusts just appeared in the sky. They flew down from the northeast in clouds so thick they obscured the sun. That sounds fun. They immediately began to dig holes in the soil about four inches deep and a half inch wide. And they would deposit a hundred eggs in each hole. By the way, the way they leg eggs is pretty creepy too. Not that the burying a hole in a hundred eggs in one isn't creepy enough. But they would put them in one inch long, thick as a pencil, and they would rise out of those. And they literally look like something from a sci-fi horror movie. They said about 70,000 eggs would be concentrated in a square yard of soil. And for miles they cover the ground. And guess what happens in a few weeks? Those eggs hatch, resembling large ants. They haven't formed wings yet, so they just crawl and hop on the ground like fleas. They would cover four to 600 feet a day, and they would devour every bit of vegetation in their path. As they grow up, they develop the ability to jump, at which point their range got higher. They would scour the trees and vines. A few weeks later, they got wings so they could fly, and they would swarm over the area and destroy any plant. And within a few days, there was literally nothing living left. So they ate the bark off of the trees. As they got more desperate, they would swarm houses and eat food, clothing, Fabric and wood. It's like middle school boys at a pizza party. They left nothing behind. And so as Joel is writing, that's the situation they're in. And they're asking the question, why? And what do we do? Joel tells them there is one answer to the cause And one solution that they need. And it was simply this. He says, you can look at all these other stuff. You can try to come up with different stuff. But the cause is our sin. And the solution is repentance. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Even now, he says, listen, he has described to them their sin. He's described to them the day of the Lord, the judgment that has come, the judgment that is coming. And he says, your sin is the issue. And he says, if we're going to see God move, if we're going to see God do something, then this is what we need to do even now. Verse 12, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the age. 
Gather the infants, even the babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? So Joel says, listen, this is the state we're in. We have bad leadership. They've led us in a terrible direction. We have forgotten the sin of our lives. We have seen a national plague descend upon us. We have seen economic hardships because of it. We don't know how to get out of this. We don't know what direction we're going. And if you want to see God move, if you want to get out of this, the solution is repentance. And what I love in this passage is he gives us a picture of what true repentance is. He tells us in just a few words, in fact, just a couple of verses of what repentance really looks like. Let me just say from the very beginning, I know that repentance is a very religious Bible word. And it's not a word we use in our broader context and society very much. And in those cases, a lot of times I try to come up with a better word for us to hear and to know so that we can relate it to what's happening. Here's the reality. There's no better word for repentance than repentance. As difficult as it is to understand or that we don't use it. And that's because that is the biblical understanding of what it requires to have the Lord look at us and feel or understand. He knows already who our heart, what our hearts are. And repentance is that act of agreeing with Him about our sin, confessing it before Him, telling Him how sorry we are for what it has done to Him, and returning to Him. It is not one part of a process or a second part. It is the complete process of returning to the Lord. And it tells us in these verses that there are three aspects of true biblical repentance. Now, over in Paul's writings, he'll tell us that sometimes people will act like they're repenting and it is not true repentance. It is sorrow for a moment that fades and they aren't truly confessing their sin, admitting it before the Lord and turning in a different direction. They are just following the protocol that churches established so people will think they are. But Joel tells us this is what true repentance looks like. And the first thing is another biblical word is there has to be confession we'll talk about each of these in just a moment but once we've confessed to the lord there has to be contrition and then there has to be a return now if i was a really good baptist preacher i would have had another c down there but i didn't right the first thing is that there has to be confession and this is all that confession truly is sometimes confession gets kind of put in through a mix of a lot of different ideas and understandings and cultural and religious understandings, the most basic form of what the Bible means when it talks about confession is that it is an acknowledgement of our sin. It is an agreement with God about our sin. The word confess at its core means to agree with. 
And what that means is that we say to the Lord, I now understand at least as much as I can how you view the sin in my life. And I'm not excusing it. I'm not giving out other reasons for it. I'm not blaming other people. I'm not saying that somebody else is the cause of this. This is my sin for which I am responsible. And it is abhorrent in your face. It is rotten to you. It is not acceptable to be part of my life. Lord, I confess in this moment, I agree with you that this sin is wrong. And the most important part about that, and this is a lot harder than we think it is, is that we agree to see our sin as God sees it. As the eternal, perfect, holy God sees our sin. I mentioned this in our prayer earlier. We sing songs like holy, 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 and they are absolutely true. We sing songs like how great thou art. Absolutely true. But the reality is every time in Scripture someone came to even a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, it knocks them to the ground. Moses, God says, I can't show you everything because you can't see it and live. So I'm going to hide you and I'm going to pass by. I'm going to do it in a way that you'll live. Isaiah, woe is me. The disciples were not worthy to be here. Remember when they climbed the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and they get up there and suddenly Jesus is there and you get a glimpse of who Jesus is in his totality in that moment. And what does Peter say? Do we need to build tents for ourselves so that we don't get, like we don't feel like we need to be here? We confess that, Lord, against a holy and perfect and good God, I have chosen to disobey and to do my own thing because I think I know best. And my sin is not a small little mistake or something that I inadvertently did. It is a deliberate act of rebellion against an eternal God. That confession ought to lead to contrition. Not another word we don't use a whole lot in our world, but it means a godly sorrow over our sin. Look what it says here. This is the Lord's declaration. Tear your heart, not just your clothes. Verse 12, return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Fasting. We've been on Tuesdays fasting during this time frame. Many of us have chosen to do that and encourage you over the next couple of weeks to join us in that. Fasting is not just a time to skip a meal and it's not necessarily for God, in fact. I mean, it is for us to acknowledge our complete dependence upon Him. And in some ways that they would often talk about fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That in the Old Testament it was also a time of mourning, depriving yourself, showing contrition to the Lord for the sin in your lives. Over in the Beatitudes when it talks about the blessed, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will see God. 
There's that one in the midst of that. I don't know if you remember, we did the Summer on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount last summer, and we did that beatitude, and it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We talked about the reality that those that are mourned there means those that realize their separation from eternal God, and they weep and they wail, and the word there means they cry in a way that they don't care who sees it or how embarrassing it might be or what it says about them. They openly weep over their distance from their Lord. One of the things that we talk about as kids, as adults grow up, one of the things that we talk about is a sign of maturity is learning to control your emotions better. One of the things that's true in the spiritual life is when we come to a place of maturity, we don't care about our emotions when it comes to declaring to the Lord how sorry we are and the sorrow in our heart for our own sin. We confess to the Lord, this is my sin. We show contrition or sorrow. We weep and we mourn. And then the last thing is we return. It says, tear your hearts. This is an internal thing. This isn't just an external. This is in the depths of who we are. We tear our hearts and return to your God. In Scripture, any time the word is repentance, is talked about, there is this understanding that we need to turn from the sin in our lives and turn to God. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is writing to them to declare to them how excited he is about what's happening, he says, it has rung throughout the region. It has reverberated throughout the region how you have turned from idols and turned to God. And that is the definition of what it means to repent. It is the sorrow over our sin that leads to a sorrowful contrition of our heart. We confessed it. We're contrite over it. And then we say, Lord, I can't have this as a part of my life anymore. And so I am a leaving it behind. I'm literally turning 180 and I'm focusing it on you. And I'm returning to you. It's the prodigal son in the pit of the pig looking at the pods and saying, I have to go home. I can't stay here. And I know the general reaction of many of you in this room when I say that is, well, I'm not in that bad of a situation, which just shows that you aren't completely understanding of the sin in your own life. Because without Christ, or even as we've walked away from Him or distanced ourselves from Him, every one of us is that prodigal son in the pit. It says that all of this has to come from within. So Joel, looking out over his people, he says, listen, you want to know what the problem is, why the locusts have come, why the bad leadership is here? It's because of our sin. Not because of their sin, not because of somebody else's sin, not because of the world outside of our sin. It is because of our sin. And we must confess and weep and return to the Lord. This is what I love. Because if we just kind of left it there, it'd be like, man, what is the motivation? That doesn't sound very fun at all. But it says there in verse 13, return to the Lord. Why? What's the motivation? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He relents from sending disaster. Who knows, verse 14 says, 
he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. I love this because it describes God in the fullness of who he is in just a few verses. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, faithful love. He may relent and show his mercy. He may leave a blessing behind, which is grace. He may not do to us what we deserve. And in, in fact, he may give us something we don't deserve. And the story of the gospel is simply that. That our God, when we confess to him, we have turned our backs on you. We have walked away from you. We have sinned before you. God, we have chosen to rebel against you. That when we make that confession to him and ask him to save us, that he relents and he gives. He is gracious, giving when it is undeserved. And compassionate, looking to give love instead of correction. Slow to anger. And I I don't want to skip over that one. I don't think we will ever, this side of heaven, understand the number of times that the patience of God and His anger has spared us from unforeseeable, rightful judgment. He is abounding in faithful love. What's our motivation? Sounds crazy. It's His kindness and His mercy and His grace. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says it this way. Do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience? Hear those themes again. Slow to anger, patient, kind. Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It is not his judgment that ought to lead us to repentance, although it can. It is his kindness because he is so willing to forgive and not only relent, but give a blessing in the place of the judgment. Now here's what happens here. He doesn't say that if we repent, if we confess and are contrite and return, that it is a guarantee that the Lord will relent. It's not a guarantee. It says, who knows, He may. Now, here's the point of all of this to understand. We can't have a formula of exactly what we do and God has to respond. Because if we had a formula of what we have to do, and if we do it, God has to respond, that that means we're in control of God, which is not the case. He is completely free to respond. But what is required for him to be able to move according to his word and his plan is that there has to be a general attitude of our hearts and of our congregation and of our church. And then God may. And the history of it is more often than not, he will. Regardless, we still come because it is better to confess and admit and return for our lives than it's not to. But if he chooses, it says that he will relent and show mercy. It says that he rescues, that he restores, and that he resides with us. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of Joel 2. I'd encourage you to go read. You can go read the whole book of Joel. It's not very long. You see about the locust plague in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is about returning. And chapter 3 is about what God can do and will do in the midst. But it says that if God is willing, He will relent from sending His judgment. He will rescue us from our current situation. 
He will restore our fortunes. In fact, what it says in here, I almost tried to put restore squared because he says, I'm going to restore your land to the way it was before and give you all the stuff you lost in the process. I'll double up over the next few years what you get in yield. But more importantly than that, it says, and you will know that I'm your God and that I live with you. God relents from sending his judgment on our lives. He rescues us from our own bad decisions and the consequences that we have. He restores us completely in our relationship with Him. And He promises to live with us and guide us. If we want God to move here and now, then we must understand the severity of our sin. Repent. Confess it with contrition and return to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come today realizing that all of us in this room struggle with our own sin. And Lord, it's not when we look at our lives and we look at our church and ask you to move here and now. God, we're not, we're not called to confess the sin of our nation or the sin of the people out there. We're not called to confess the sins of our neighbors. We're not called to realize the severity of that, Lord, although that is real. Lord, you've called us to confess the sin of our hearts. And the sin of us as a people. And so, Lord, as we're asking you to move here and now, Lord, we come and agree with you that our lives are filled with things that are contrary to your will. They're filled with sin. And that sin is disgusting in your sight, as it should be as a holy and perfect God. And, Lord, we come desiring to be used by you Lord, we want to return to you. We want to see nations restored. We want to see people's lives transformed. We want to see the renown of your name echo in this church and in this area. Lord, we'd love to be a part of that. We know you don't have to use us, but Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to be a part of it. Lord, I pray if there are those in this room today that just have something on their heart, something in their lives, maybe nobody else in this room knows about, maybe one or two other people know, but Lord, they need to give that to you. They need to come to a place of confession and contrition and return. And they need to do that here and now. Not wait two or three days, not wait a couple of weeks, but they need to do it here and now. Lord, I pray that that would happen. Lord, I pray if there are those in this room today that have never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that they would realize, Lord, that you're waiting. You're there. And the steps to that are the steps that are the same as what we talked about. Lord, we pray that if there are those here today that have not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that don't have a saving relationship with you, Lord, that you would make them aware of that, that they would be uncomfortable in that even in this moment. And Lord, you would help them to understand that it just requires confessing 
their sin and their need for you to save them, believing in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and what he did in rising again from the grave. And Lord, confessing that truth. Lord, I pray you would save people today. And more than anything, Lord, we pray for your name to be made great and for your kingdom to be advanced. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.